the podcaster and author Tim Ferriss talks about cultivating a low information diet. And I really like, I like that phrasing because what it gets at is that we're not trying to give you more quantity. We're not trying to take more of your time. We're trying to give, get enough of your time to give you the information that you want or need or both and uh, get out of your hair. You know, like we're not, part, part of that's the nature of our publication. We're not trying to be your all-encompassing news outlet. We're trying to get you, give you this piece of your news. Welcome to Chat with Leaders, where we amplify the voices of leaders who use business and influence as a voice for good. We believe it's their example that will have a tremendous impact on our next generation of servant leaders who will carry us forward into our bright, sustainable future. In today's episode, Jeff Bond chats with Trevor Williams, Managing Director at Global Atlanta, an online news service covering Atlanta's intersection with the global economy. Trevor talks to Jeff about getting started in journalism, why Atlanta is indisputably an international city, and how journalism can have a global, local, and individual impact. Let's jump into this conversation with Trevor Williams. Over to you, Jeff. Trevor, welcome to Chat with Leaders. It's so good to have you. Thanks, Jeff. Really appreciate it. Oh, man, I've been looking forward to this for a while. The things that you're doing in Atlanta to really uplift the global economy here in this market, as well as shine a spotlight on your stakeholders, really is second to none. You have some of the most spot-on reporting, thoughtful reporting. I mean, there's just so much you get out of global Atlanta. So I can't wait for more and more people to hear about it. Really appreciate it. That's really what we need. Get the word out there more. We've only been around for 30 years. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> just 30 years and you've been showing some great leadership here as of late. So uh, let's jump right into our theme today of modeling Atlanta's example as a global city. So first, what do you wish that people understood about how companies are engaging with the global economy and the effects of the foreign enterprises operating here in our marketplace in Atlanta? I think um, there's been some hand-wringing in Atlanta about uh, whether we are a global city or an international city. I think you can define those things in different ways. When you think of global cities, obviously, you think about places like New York and London, maybe Paris, some others around the world. When you think of an international city, you think of one that has the assets that we, a lot of the same assets that we claim here in Atlanta. And I think that's what has been the, the question has been closing the gap between the assets that we have and the perception or the reputation that we have around the world. I think it's indisputable at this point that Atlanta is an international city and that it has all of the, the things that international cities bring to the table. The big question is about mindset, is about stature in the world, uh, and I like the way the new mayor of Atlanta, Andre Dickens, puts it uh, at, at an event I covered recently. He said, you know, we are graduating on the world stage. And uh, that's something I've said for a long time in a different way. I sort of framed it as Atlanta being an adolescent, <laughs> a, young, a young person that has all the assets of adulthood, but has not yet stepped into that from a leadership perspective or just from a gravitas perspective. So that's what we're trying to showcase here in Atlanta. In terms of companies, I think that's been the thing that we've had all along. I mean, it's Atlanta is a hugely important city when it comes to Fortune 500 companies, uh, headquarters, for instance, third largest concentration. We've got a growing tech sector. We've got the civil rights history. Uh, we've got all of these things, again, that, that make a, a city international. We have the airport. But what I find that people don't understand is the level of intra-firm internationalization and 
I mean by that is how much companies at all levels, small, medium, mega companies are engaging with the world on a daily basis and sometimes unbeknownst to even the people that are working within those companies. And that, that's what we're trying to showcase is how they're navigating the nuances of, a, of an interconnected world. And um, our founder, Phil Bolton, always used to give a talk called uh, Conception to Cliché, that there was, when he started Global Atlanta in the early 90s, the idea of, of Atlanta being a global city was a foreign concept in a way. It was seen as a, a southern city, right? There was It was not really, it had not had the Olympics yet, for instance. And part of the founding of Global Atlanta was coming right after the Olympics were announced for the city. And so we kind of, our founding kind of goes along with Atlanta growing into itself as an international city. But now the flip side is that it's a, it's a cliche, right? Like everything is global. We're all connected. The world is flat. And we tend to look at it in a passe manner almost. Um, Either it's the, the boogeyman for all society's ills, or it's just taken for granted. And uh, we, we sit somewhere in the middle where we want to give a realistic perspective of it, but show you that there are a lot of hills and valleys that you need to, to climb over in order to really do business around the world. So, And then on the, on the other end, I think people in Atlanta don't really understand how internationally dependent we are in a lot of ways. And I don't mean that in a bad way, on foreign investment for the jobs of the future, as the State Economic Development Department says. Um, already, if you look at the automotive industry, for instance, uh, it's, if you look at fintech, if you look at some of these very influential sectors in the state, I don't remember what the figure is for automotive, but I know in fintech, TAG just released a report that 40,000 jobs are supported in Georgia by that industry alone. A lot of those are homegrown companies, but increasingly they're internationally based companies that are coming in and using Atlanta as a gateway to the U.S. market and beyond. A lot of times Atlanta is used as a gateway to Latin America and other places. But I, I think we don't really understand until it becomes a problem <laughs> how interconnected we are. And so our goal is to kind of get us out in front of these things and talk about them for what they are rather than uh, waiting until they become an issue. Yeah, I love that. And it's a more proactive measure that you take. Your headline is the world is here. You know, the time is now. And for those that didn't know, it's interesting to understand that Global Atlanta was ushered in around the Olympics and where we started to think about ourselves as this international city versus the southern city that you mentioned. And then just the 30 years of continued growth and and not to mention the education sector, the amount of schools we have here, the amount of foreign talent that's now coming into the city and the intercultural aspects of our connectivity here in Atlanta. A lot of really interesting stories and themes within all of that that you're reporting on. Um, I wanted to touch a little bit on your personal journey of leadership and your love for journalism. So when did that start and how did you personally find yourself at this intersection with the global business stories that you report on today? I wanted to make one more quick point. You mentioned the world is here. Um, You know, that's, we've been saying that for about 10 years now. And the idea is that, you know, whether you plug your head into the sand or not, you are part of what's going on in the global economy. You're an actor, not just a recipient of the action. You can make waves and ripples. You don't have to be just the, on the on the back end receiving it. So we kind of have this approach that through our content that action should be taken based on the reporting that we do and the information that we provide. But our company name, most people don't know, is Grounded Global Media. We, know, we don't put that out there because it's just our our holding company, basically. 
But the idea of grounded globalism is outlined in a book from a University of North Carolina professor. And he talks, it's not really a personal idea, but it's it's more about the South in general, formerly seeing itself as being in opposition to the North and now having to re- reorient itself toward the world and start looking outward and create its own identity beyond just being an oppositional force, basically, because of what's happening in cities, uh, particularly like Atlanta, Nashville, Charlotte, and elsewhere, growing more increasingly diverse, more industry moving down from the North, more industry moving in from outside, and then all the same things you mentioned, students, uh, education, agriculture, trade, all these things that are inherently global. So we're really excited about this idea of like, you can be rooted locally and active globally. And uh, this is, uh, I think, a false dichotomy that some people get into that I hope we can talk about more later. In terms of the journalism piece, so I uh, I don't know how far back you want to go, but I guess I'll start with writing. Writing started kind of as therapy for me. I had some issues with my family as I was in high school. So I was learning to play guitar, but I was also writing. So it gave me two good outlets for uh, dealing with my emotions. <laughs> And um, so I started really getting deeply into writing because of that, of course, beyond just the general writing that you do in school. Then as I got into finally uh, declared journalism as my major, well, I guess before that, I was majoring in uh, psychology because I thought I wanted to be a counselor. And again, writing was the undercurrent there because I thought I can help myself get through some of these problems or find resources to help myself do that, then maybe I can pass that on to others. And I started thinking that that would be a nice career path. Of course, I didn't want to get a master's right away. So I decided I'd go into something more practical. And I say that with quotes because (laughs) journalism in 2007 was not a very practical discipline when uh, Craigslist was decimating the news media and uh, everybody was trying to figure out how to survive. It still is in a lot of ways. But I think what kind of hooked me on writing as a career was that I started to see it as a vehicle for experience. You know, if you're doing journalism, you're you're having the experience and then you're reporting the experience back to a, an audience or readership base. And um, whether that's just purely procuring information on the telephone or whether it's going to Korea, like I did two weeks ago, you are able to, you're able to see different things about the world. You're able to um, get on the ground viewpoints able to engage with people in a different way. And that really attracted me. So at first I started traveling, I had two mentors in uh, college, one of whom was a former army ranger who asked me to go to Jordan with him. And I obliged at 19 years old. This was my first uh, international trip. I had to get a passport and um, I did not have a passport until then. And the idea was that this journalist would come to Jordan in 2004 and write about the tourism assets of the country. So it was total junket, total boondoggle type trip. But what it did is it made me, it made me have to find an audience, right? I had to basically prove that I could write, I had to prove that I had an audience, and then I could go have the experience and then report back about it. So I went to the UGA student newspaper, the Red and Black, and I said, hey, I've got this trip potentially lined up. I'd love to write something for y'all. Of course, they have, at that time, there was about 18,000 circulation or something like that. So that was enough. So I went back to the Jordanian Tourism Board and said, hey, I have this publication, 18,000 readers. You know, Of course, you want to be in front of these guys. And uh, they said, sure, come along on the trip and just write something there. So that that's what got me in. 
And after that experience, I was hooked. I went to China two months later, having not studied any Chinese or spoken any Chinese at that point. And again, further solidified the international bent and the desire to kind of use this discipline as a way to have interesting international experiences. So I thought I was going to be Indiana Jones or something, or, you know, National Geographic travel writer. That was kind of my archetype for what I wanted to do. This job opportunity with Global Atlantic was actually just a career posting at the UGA Journalism School. And my girlfriend at the time, now wife, was looking at the posting. I was being wishy-washy about applying. And she was like, language capacity, international engagement. Like, why are you hesitating? <laughs> For me, the hesitation was business. I didn't really know anything about business. I had no, no training at all. I thought it would be boring. But I think when I took an uh, anthropological lens on business, sort of a cultural lens to it, and saw that it could be a vehicle for cross-cultural engagement, that's when it started to click with me. And you can learn all the numbers. You can learn how to report on business versus reporting on cultural affairs and things like that. But uh, you cannot replace the platform, right? And that's really what, what Global Atlanta has given me for 15 years in various levels, right? I'm in a different sphere now than I kind of was at the start, but that's what's kept me sticking around is, is the platform and the opportunity to engage with the world. Love it. Yeah. And I would argue even now business has become more of a platform that fosters cross-cultural awareness because we have so many companies that are expanding to global organizations. And, you know, I have a client, for instance, that has 20 plus nationalities representing their firm with 800 plus employees from Dublin to San Francisco. And it's a wonderful opportunity for them to learn about one another's cultures, to be able to adapt to that within the workplace and then bring that skill set that mindset, you know, turn that into a skill set out in the community, out in the world. So I think business is such a great place to bring people together into a greater mindset of of global awareness, which kind of leads me into the question of what has fundamentally changed maybe about your work. And and maybe that's one of the things. So how's that opened up new avenues for growth and awareness? Yeah, I wanted to say say one quick thing about what you're saying about business and culture, just then journal, I found that journalism is a great way to inculcate sort of soft skills, right? That all employers are wanting these days. What do you want? You want the ability to communicate, you want empathy, you want curiosity, you want initiative, you want entrepreneurialism. I mean, if you take the crafting of a story, I mean, it's it's a exercise in scientific method and entrepreneurship. <laughs> like you take a hypothesis and you're testing it out and you have to go get it. And there's no excuses, right? <laughs> like you either do it or you don't. And um, it's also a way, again, to foster empathy. Like you, you have to look at all sides of an issue. You have to craft a, an article that's not your own point of view. It's, yeah, you have to listen. You know, at, at least in the impartial sort of uh, observational side of journalism. But I think these are things that are in high demand. And then when you, when you put international on top of it and the cross-cultural element to it and the sensitivity and humility that that brings to it, I think um, if... We would love to create some sort of curriculum for young people that even if they're not going into journalism to basically use journalism as an avenue for 
uh, cultivating some of those skills. So that's that's a little soapbox of mine. But that's where you start is with the young people, right? The next generation. It's always that impact. You know, we're mere mortals here on this earth, and it's all about passing these skill sets down. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, the thirty years that you've been at it with Global Atlanta is just a blip on the map. But we're not even in our third millennia here in the U.S., uh, for instance, and so we're still growing in terms of our thoughts of nationalism and now thinking about our interdependency with with the globe, you know, and, and being less kind of here on our North American island in our in our privileged state, you know, but but really thinking about how our interdependency is is being shaped for our next generation. Yeah. I want definitely want to talk about that. I think we'll get to that. So you're asking about what's changed? Yeah, what's changed? You know, how is it? How have you seen change over the course of your thirty years uh, with Global Atlanta or Global Atlanta's thirty years and your yeah. time there? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the fundamentals of journalism haven't really changed. I think that um, I think the way that we are positioning it is a bit different now. It's not so much just an impartial reporting on what on what's happening. It's we as a company are trying to be part of the solution for companies. Not in terms of the way we write the content, but in terms of what our what our overall like positioning in the community is. The content continues to be free, it continues to be objective. But I think we as a as a company are starting to see our value in the community and try to bring bring more of that value to people. That's taken on a different kind of avenue. And I think that's that's kind of a lesson that we're trying to learn. I think a lot of other media outlets are trying to learn is you know, we have kind of like what I just talked about, we have a lot of skills and assets to offer the world. And um, there is certainly a place for nonprofit journalism for holding people accountable. And I, I respect all the journalists whose jobs are way harder than mine <laughs> around the world. Mine is pretty cushy, I will say. And I'm very conscious of that. So there are a lot of people that are doing a lot, lot harder work than I, and I, I really appreciate what they do. That said, there are a lot of ways that we can assert ourselves a little bit more and the fact that we do have value for society. And it's just figuring out a way to position that where the people that hold the purse strings acknowledge it. Right. And that that's, that's the exercise that we're in the middle of right now is figuring all that out in terms of producing content. I think the way that you disseminate and the way you can manage your digital media outlet in particular has changed quite a bit. I mean, I had the opportunity to take, photojournalism or digital media when I was in, in college. I think they've they've changed things quite a bit, obviously, since 15 years ago. But it was interesting that you had to make this, there was a dichotomy, right? Like you, you had to either choose one or the other. I was doing like manual coding of you know, stuff and building things on Dreamweaver and all that. And I think that, you know, and I'm, I'm still terrible at all that, but what it did was it gave me a baseline to understand that changes were afoot in the way that you, digital media was being seen. And what's great about today that Phil didn't have when he started in 1991 is you can accept payments, you can do e-commerce, you can do subscriptions, you can publish, we can aggregate events, we can manage our emails. Everything we do, we can do on the cloud, uh, location independent with a lot cheaper and a lot more modular tools. So. I think the building blocks of a model, particularly when you throw in cross-border element to it, are um, much easier to put together. So if you have this kind of blend of tech and talent, it's kind of levels the playing field with smaller players like us, because we have a website just like any other publication does. It's not, you know, 
the advantage of having a distribution network of hundreds of trucks no longer applies, right? So uh, small players like us can assert ourselves in a different way. And you even see the, the proliferation of things like Substack, right? Like where the reporter has become the brand in a lot of ways and era where trust is sort of being disaggregated or whatever, a singular person that people can relate to has more currency in a lot of ways, which is fascinating. And I'm not sure it's necessarily a good thing all the time, but, but been, there's been this disintegration of trust in institutions. It's been particularly in the last five years, I would say. And you know, while that has societal implications that are potentially negative, I think it's kind of good for small media outlets that have a direct connection with their audience and really know the community where they work. There's also been this proliferation of platforms, social media and messaging. I was a sort of early early adopter of Twitter, like 2008, something like that. And it was really just playing around to see what it was. Um, now, every country I go to, I have to download a new app. And increasingly, people are spending time on these super apps. And uh, they're not really getting email newsletters in, in a lot of places. So I think that's a, that's a big lift for us to figure out how to deliver content in that kind of world and how to you know stay on top of relationships too, because you can't just rely on... I can tell you when I... When I give, send out an email, it'll take two or three days for somebody to respond in Korea, for instance. I send a cacao message, they come back immediately. It doesn't matter what time of day it is. <laughs> it could be midnight here and or midnight there and 12, 8, 12 p.m. here, noon, and they'll, they'll respond quickly. So knowing the right platform for the different nationality or the audience you're trying to reach, I think is really important. And then there's the challenge of just short digital attention span. You know, like we're just competing with so much out there. So we try to help people, you know, uh, the podcaster and author Tim Ferriss talks about cultivating a low information diet. And I really like, I like that phrasing because what it gets at is that we're not trying to give you more quantity. We're not trying to take more of your time. We're trying to give enough of your time to give you the information that you want or need or both and get out of your hair. You know, like we're not Part of that's the nature of our publication. We're not trying to be your all-encompassing news outlet. We're trying to get you, give you this piece of your news. And um, so we don't need your eyeballs for an hour. And we've we've built our model in such a way that hopefully we don't, your eyeballs are not the, the core of what we're trying to get anyway. We're trying to reach your heart and your mind. <laughs> but I guess my point is that you have to think about digital, uh, people's short attention spans in ways that you didn't maybe even like five years ago. I think there's the way streaming has come on so strong. People always watch TV, but people didn't binge like they do now. <laughs> so. Oh, now it's just shorts, little clips of everything. You, yeah. know, you just scroll through and you get TikTok. 10 seconds of this and 20 mm -hmm. seconds of that. And that's the way people consume it. So, well, it's super interesting. And I would say that you've really stayed ahead of the technology trends and you turn out a ton of content as an individual. And so it's uh, it's incredible what you're able to do. Uh, so I, I did want to go back to the internationalization conversation too. And so I think you have a strong opinion about that. So what is what is a misconception about internationalization that you passionately disagree with and believe could be a missed opportunity for business leaders today? Well, I think from a like personal perspective, I think it's there's kind of a false dichotomy between 
local identity and global citizenship, right? Like I think we kind of see it as one or the other. Like if I have a really strong Southern identity or I'm a Georgia boy, I can't necessarily be what these international elites are calling a global citizen, right? And I think there's some uh, there's some merit to that idea of these two things being disconnected in a way, but I think it doesn't have to be like that. And there's certainly a lot of reasons that people are turned off by internationalizations that ha that has and internationalization and globalization. I would say are different things, but I, let's just say globalization. There's a lot of good reasons that people are turned off by that. If you look at say the Fuhrer over NAFTA, for instance, and how the, the renegotiation of that trade agreement happened. Trade is something I nerd out on and write, write a lot about. So not a lot of people care that much until their job is at risk, right? But the way I've read it, I think the thing that I've read that's made the most impact on me from a trade perspective is that the benefits are diffuse, meaning widespread. The pain is acute, meaning very concentrated. So you have you could easily say, oh, global trade is great for the U.S. economy. We have 3% more or 2% more GDP growth because of that over a certain period of time. Or we traded this many billions of dollars with Mexico and Canada because we opened up tariff-free trading on the North American continent, whatever. That doesn't really matter if someone loses their job. They're not looking at statistics. They're looking at the thing that matters to them most, which is I can't put food on the table anymore. I, I am a worker that has been doing the same job for 30 years and now I can't foresee retraining myself, you know, within within the two years necessary that it is going to take for me to get a new job at a more high-tech factory uh, that requires specialized training and computers and all these things. So again, a lot of reasons why people fear or if not fear, uh, at least kind of have a standoffish sort of view towards global integration. But I think the big problem is that it's a, it's seen as a dichotomy. It's seen as an either or because most people that are cry, screaming the loudest about it are not telling you the other side of the story, which is that, yes, there has been this creative destruction um, in our capitalist economy that has been detrimental to a lot of families, for sure. And there's also been a lot of innovation. There's also been a lot of lowering of costs for the consumer, right? So we don't want to be cheerleaders for globalization or for anything, really. We want to really just be the ones to show you what we see is kind of the other side of the story, which is that there are ways that we can both influence it and benefit from it. So that's the other thing. It's not one-sided. It's not that we are the passive recipients of, you know, say right now it's China, right? Before it was Japan, whatever the the country of the day is that's taking our jobs or the immigrants that are coming in and taking our, our jobs, whatever our is. And that's a whole nother conversation we can have, but you are not, you may be the recipient of a job loss for sure. But if you're looking at it from a broader perspective, which is admittedly hard when you're in the throes of a challenge like that, there are a lot of ways that you can make your imprint on the world as well. And um, I think particularly when you talked about the young, young, younger generation, they get this in a way that probably my generation didn't get, you know, that you can make your own waves in the world. And I think there's a danger that it becomes a kumbaya thing and it becomes a, we're all in this together. Uh, the world is flat kind of mentality that papers over differences and papers over challenges of communicating or 
dealing with people across cultures or across language barriers because we mistake access or technological connection with human connection. But I think they get that there is an opportunity in a way that maybe I I didn't until I got knee deep in this stuff. So I think we we need to kind of reframe the narrative a bit to say that yes, there are challenges, but there is also a big opportunity for Americans or Southerners or Georgians or Atlantans or whatever you are, however you identify yourself, bring that to the world and let's make our voices heard and let's make our passions felt. And people, I think, respond to that authenticity in a positive way. These two things are not at odds with each other. What I love to do when I travel is experience the local culture. I don't want to go over there and see whatever symbols of Americanism are there. I want to see how people live in their own context. Of course, I'm happy if I can get a Starbucks coffee. That's a bonus. But like when I was in Korea two weeks ago, I did not go to any American chains. It would have been easy to do. But it's, I guess my point is that when, and I think this is an advantage for the South too, because we have such a distinct culture. People love who you are as, and as much as you love who they are, right? Just like you want to learn about them, they want to learn about you. They don't want to have your canned answer about what you think they want to hear. They want to know who you really are. And um, I think that's, that's something we need to lean into more and not, we need to see the difference. Like you've talked about, I think, in um, your work with this company you mentioned earlier, see the difference as a potential advantage, as a potential conduit for creativity, right? But we've been so conditioned to see it even in our melting pot of society as a potential threat that uh, we've lost lost a lot. Well, even with our nationalism, we have a lot of divisiveness today. I don't think anyone can argue with that and certainly opening your mindset to a global scope and, and realizing the, the significance of our interconnectedness is, is humbling and it's unifying and the stories that you share with Global Atlanta is a great way to invest in a bit more awareness, you know, to think a little bit more broadly. So if I were to land the plane here with our conversation, it's been awesome. I feel like I could talk to you forever. How would you define success looking back over your leadership of Global Atlanta someday? And what's your greatest hope for the impact that we'll have had on Atlanta and beyond? You know, I think there are those who identify themselves as global citizens to kind of go back to what we were just talking about. I'm happy to continue to serve them. I think we need to. They're sort of our bread and butter supporters and subscribers, right? Diplomats, people that are doing international investment work, people that are traveling, airlines that are ferrying people around the world. Those are the kind of people who get what we do instantly. They don't see the the dichotomy between local and global. But if I were to define what success is, I would say it's reaching people, like we talked about in the first question, who don't really know how interconnected they already are and helping them figure out how to navigate that. Now, that's kind of an individual thing. It's it's going to be a slow slog to do that. And I don't think there's necessarily a uh, contradiction between serving the, the really deeply engaged internationally oriented audience and those that are maybe on the periphery right now. I think the fact that we have the connections with the deeply engaged audience actually helps us with those that, that may need to know how, how connected they are. We, we always say we're not really creating anything. We're just shining a spotlight. I mean, there's infinitely more going on just in Atlanta than we even know about. And we're spending 
all of our working hours every day focused on this stuff. And it's we're constantly surprised at how little we know. Or I won't say surprised, but we're constantly um, in awe of how little we know. I think the more you learn, the, the more you realize how little you know. And, well, you're um, always learning, aren't you? I mean, my gosh, you're in front of all these these stories and you're shining a spotlight outward. So uh, it, it's so easy to self-promote in today's world. So many people do it, but when you actually take an active interest in your stakeholders, your community, the players in the business uh, community that you write about and you really honor them the way that you do, such a wonderful way to self-educate and continue to challenge your own assumptions uh, and move yeah. past them. Uh, so you do a great yeah, job Phil, Phil called it relationship reporting. And it's kind of interesting because I mean, there's this idea in journalism, you need to have a keep a arms and arms length uh, position from your sources. And I think there's some merit to that, of course. But his, I think his idea and what how he would frame it is that you know you're gonna see the person the next day. <laughs> you know, it's like he used to do um, he he was on the police beat and, or you know, he was a bureau chief in Milledgeville, Georgia for the Macon Telegraph. And so that local journalism mindset really has infused what we do because it's like. You better be fair because you're going to see the guy or gal in the morning at the next press conference or whatever it is. And I think that's, you can't be a PR agency and be a journalist at the same time, right? You have to have some impartiality. You have to tell the hard truth sometimes. But I think the way that we try to tell the truth is in such a way that we're, you know, prioritizing the um, the city's health and the relationships that we have cultivated, right? So we generally try not to take, try not to get a scoop at the expense of a source, right? Like, of course, you don't, you don't need to burn your, you, you have to pick, pick the bridges to burn, right? right? But uh, we take, we play the long game. We're not, again, our model is not built on, you know, how many more eyeballs can we get today? It's built on the long, long-term commitment to uh, Atlanta's internationalization and, and showing how that's happening. And to have the access that we need to do that, sometimes it requires taking a longer view. But I think, too, in the social media landscape where it's soundbite after soundbite, it is, I like other news outlets that kind of get beyond that, right? And get, you know, maybe maybe it's with, you know, very targeted and short uh, information that doesn't make me wait through a lot of stuff, but it's not. It's not reporting on something for the purpose of stirring the pot. <laughs> so, and uh, that's, well, you have to, I think you have to kind of reserve that option, but use it only when necessary, right? Yeah, there's enough and pot stirs out there causing a ruckus. <laughs> too much of what is, what passes as media now is just pot stirring. Yeah, well, it's selling advertising too, is trying to herd people into these categories of, of, I believe in this, you know, what's being stirred over here. And now we're in this kind of camp to where we can be advertised and sold to, and we've got our attention and it's a, uh, it's a big game out there, but I appreciate the honest reporting that you do, the stories that you share. If people wanted to follow you online, of course, we'll include all these resources on our show notes, but where would you direct them? Yeah. Globalatlanta.com. I mean, the best way to get, get stuff from us is through an email newsletter. So you can just click on um, the little envelope at the top or just go to globalatlanta.com slash newsletters. You don't want to get emails or Global Atlanta on all the social media platforms, or at least a lot of them. And then I personally am on Twitter at J Trevor Williams. I'm actually doing more on LinkedIn these days than Twitter, but um, 
and JTK Williams, or you can just find me by searching my name, Global Atlanta on LinkedIn. Great. And we'll put a direct link to the newsletter because it really is one of those newsletters. It's one of the few that I actually enjoy reading and I look forward to receiving. And uh, certainly the, the recent pictures of your trip to Korea that are on LinkedIn is worth following you just alone to go back and like I did live vicariously through that, the travels that you have there. So thank you for sharing that with the world. And, and thank you for sharing this gift of time with me today on Chat with Leaders. It really was a time well spent. Thank you. Appreciate it. Well, that wraps up another edition of Chat with Leaders. Thank you for investing your time with us today. If you haven't already, we would be grateful if you shared this episode with a friend and rated it on Apple or wherever you get your podcast, so we can pass down the wisdom from our guests to more aspiring leaders. If you're interested in launching a professional podcast to grow your business, we would love to help. Check out chatwithleaders.com for more information and feel free to reach out by emailing team at chatwithleaders.com. Thanks again and go be a leader worth following.